Hello my lovelies and welcome to another episode of Primed for Crime. I am your host, Liv, and I'm very excited to have you here again and I really hope you enjoy today's case. So today I'm going to be talking about the boy in the box, but before we get into the case I just want to state that everything I talk about today is information I have found online and I mean no disrespect to anybody involved or mentioned. Today's episode involves the death of a child, so if this is something that you aren't comfortable listening to, then please feel free to click out of this podcast. So, let's begin. This is The Boy in the Box. It's February 25th, 1957 in rural Pennsylvania and a young man was walking in the woods whilst checking his muskrat traps. And for those of you who aren't sure, a muskrat is like a semi-aquatic rodent and I guess it kind of looks a bit like an otter or a beaver. So anyway, he was going about his business, walking along, when he stumbled across an old bassinet box. And as he crept closer to inspect this box, he made a gruesome discovery. Inside this box, the man found the body of a young boy, wrapped up in blankets. And the poor boy's hair had recently been cut, possibly after his death, as the clumps of hair were hanging from his body and possibly even stuck to his head. And after further looking at the boy, it became clear that he was severely malnourished and he also had surgical scars on his ankle, his groin and an L-shaped scar underneath his chin. The man was panicked and understandably so and he wasn't sure what to do. He knew that he should call the police but he knew that when they came they would probably confiscate his traps so he decided against calling this in. However, just a few days later, a college student called Frederick Benesis was on his way home when he spotted a rabbit running into the underbrush. And because he knew that this area was known for animal traps, he decided to stop his car on the side of the road and go into the woods to investigate, you know, to possibly see if the rabbit was okay. And until, just like the man before, he came across the boy's body, still in the box. And he was too reluctant to have any contact with the police and I'm not entirely sure why this was but the following day after hearing about the disappearance of Mary Jane Barker he did in fact report what he had found to the police. Now a bit of backstory to this case um, just if you aren't aware of who Mary Jane Barker was um, so the very same day February 25th 1957 Mary Jane, at just four years old, had gone missing along with her playdate's dog, and after extensive searches throughout the city, on March 3rd of the same year, Mary was found lying dead in the closet of a vacant house near her home, and after investigations it was concluded that this was just an unfortunate accident. So I think after knowing that there was another child missing at that time, he felt like, okay, hang on, you know, could it be Mary or could this be another child linked to the same case? So the police received the report and opened an investigation the next day on the 26th and straight away they started looking into this case of the poor boy. They first took fingerprints from the boy's body as police were optimistic that he would soon be identified. However, this wasn't the case. Nobody came forward with any information that could have helped. 
which was disappointing, I mean, especially with how much attention this case had received in Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. In fact, the Philadelphia Inquirer printed 400,000 flyers depicting the boy's likeness, and they were sent out and posted all over the area, as well as been handed out with every single gas bill. So whilst the efforts were being made by the local people and companies in the area, the police were meticulously combing through the crime scene over and over again by 270 police academy recruits, when eventually one of them discovered something. This man discovered a man's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner. Now, although this was great and they had found something, realistically it wasn't much to go off. These, these could have been anybody's, somebody could have just dumped these without even thinking. So if the police starting to lose hope, they chose to do something radical. They decided to distribute a post-mortem photograph of the boy, fully dressed and in a seated position showing how he may have looked when he was alive. And although the police were sure this would stir somebody's memory, and even with the high publicity, the case went cold and it still remains unsolved to this day. But don't go anywhere yet, the story hasn't finished. I thought it would be interesting to kind of research a bit more into this case and see if there were any theories or any sort of explanations as to what could have happened to this poor boy. And there were a few different theories, and although most of them have been dismissed, two theories have generated considerable interest amongst the police and the media, and have in fact been investigated. So I'm going to share these two theories with you all now. This first theory concerns a foster home that was located approximately one and a half miles away from where the boy's body was found. And this came about in the 1960s when Remington Bristow was an employee of the medical examiner's office and he had pursued this case trying to find answers when he got in contact with a New Jersey psychic who went on to tell him to look for a house that matched the foster home. The psychic was then brought over to Philadelphia and taken to the discovery site and as if by magic led him directly to the foster home. So Burstrow and this psychic seemed to be onto something, so when he saw an estate sale for the foster home, he knew that he had to attend. Whilst there, Burstow discovered a bassinet, which was very similar to the one sold at J.C. Penny, which was the brand of box that the boy had been found in. And when he looked out of the window, he spotted blankets hanging on the clothesline, which were also very similar to the one that the boy's body had been wrapped in. But, you know, I know what you're thinking, Liv, this could just be some huge coincidence. And I completely agree, it absolutely could have been. But Burstow believed that the boy had belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home, and that they disposed of her son's body so the stepdaughter would not be exposed as an unwed mother. And Burstow also theorised that his death was an accident. And although there was this circumstantial evidence, the police unfortunately weren't able to find any definite links between the boy and the foster family, despite investigations and interviews with the foster family. So this theory was then closed. 
Another theory was brought forward in February 2002 by a woman identified only as Martha or M. And police at the time considered her story to be plausible, but they were troubled by her testimony because she had a history of mental illness. Martha claimed that her abusive mother had purchased the unknown boy from his birth parents in the summer of 1954, and she said that this boy was called Jonathan. And after this, the boy was subjected to extreme physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years. One evening at dinner, the boy was sick and threw up all of his meal of baked beans and as a result of this, he was given a severe beating with his head slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious. It's then said that he was given a bath during which he sadly died and these details did match the information known only to the police as the coroner had found that the boy's stomach did contain the remains of baked beans and his fingers were water wrinkled. Martha's mother then cut the boy's hair, which also accounted for the unprofessional haircut that police noted in their initial investigation and it said that she did this in an effort to conceal his identity. Her mother then forced her to assist in dumping the child's body in the fox chase area. And Martha said that as they were preparing to remove the boy's body from the trunk of the car, a passing motorist pulled alongside to inquire whether they needed help with something. Her mother then ordered her to stand in front of the car's license plate in order to shield it from view while she spoke to the passerby and convinced him that there was nothing to worry about. And the man eventually drove away, and it actually corroborated a confidential testimony that was given by a male witness in 1957, who had said that the boy's body had been placed in a box previously discarded at the scene. However, even though there could be some truth in this story, the police were unable to verify it, and actually, neighbours who had access to Martha's house during the stated time period denied that there had been a young boy living there, and dismissed the claims as ridiculous. And there is actually one more little theory, and this is from a forensic artist called Frank Bender, who developed the theory that the little boy's body might have actually been raised a girl. The child's unprofessional haircut, which appeared to have been performed in a rush, was the main basis for this. He later, in 2008, released a sketch of the unidentified child with long hair to see if this helped solve the case. The boy in the box was originally buried in a potter's field, and in 1998 his body was exhumed for the purpose of extracting DNA, which was obtained from enamel on a tooth. He was then reburied at Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia, and they'd kindly donated a large plot for the boy. And the coffin, headstone and funeral service were donated by the son of the man who had buried the boy in 1957. And there was a huge, significant public attendance and media coverage at the reburial. And the grave has a large headstone that says the words, America's Unknown Child and city residents keep the grave decorated with flowers and stuffed animals. And that concludes today's episode. And I know it's been a little bit of a short one today, but I still thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I do hope that you come back for another Primed for Crime episode. However, in the meantime, if you're still craving a little bit more true crime, then you can head over to my Primed for Crime TikTok, where I post small snippets of cases daily. 
So please be vigilant, please stay safe, and I will see you very shortly. See you later.